Hi, I'm Mick Cronin and this is What's Your Cause, a podcast in which I interview a variety of guests about a cause that is close to them, something they feel passionate about. I want to start conversations that educate, inspire and shine a light on causes around the globe that can or are having a significant social impact. But here's the kicker. Each guest will nominate the next and become a chain that will lead from my very first guest to my last and ultimate guest of season one, Barack Obama. Got your attention? Thought I might. Hello there, welcome to episode 10 of What's Your Cause? So in my previous episode, I talked to Ashley Streeter-Jones um, about the incredible work that she's doing. Um, and on the back of that, she nominated Taylor Hawkins. So... Taylor is the Managing Director of Foundations for Tomorrow, a non-for-profit with a mission of advancing the protection of future generations in Australia, which has also recently launched the Australian Parliamentary Group for Future Generations. She's a passionate entrepreneur with a focus for future fit leadership, policy, innovation and social impact. Taylor is an advisor for Our Future Agenda Initiative for the United Nations Foundation. Her professional background is rooted in the work as a leadership development specialist and she's worked with uh, organisations such as Google, Adidas and Salesforce where she's helping to foster leadership fit for the future. Taylor also sits on the advisory council for the Global Shapers Community, an initiative of the World Economic Forum and is a member of the board of directors for High Resolves Australia. Taylor's work has been recognised through the Smart Companies 30 Under 30, New South Wales Young Achiever Awards, um, and she's also been selected as one of 12 Kofi Annan changemakers for 2023. Seriously, these are only a few of, of many, many accolades that Taylor has received. I feel very privileged to um, have the opportunity to sit down with Taylor and get her amazing insights into a range of topics and, and also find out more about the work that she does through uh, Foundations for Tomorrow. It's a great conversation. I'm sure you'll really, really enjoy it. And uh, with that, Let's get into episode 10 with Taylor Hawkins. Taylor, welcome to What's Your Cause? Thank you for having me. I am both excited and nervous. <laughs> well, I don't know why you should be nervous. I'm the one that's always nervous because I'm always talking to these amazing people. So, um, And every cause is different. So I'm always like a little bit nervous myself. You don't need to be nervous about anything, Taylor. Okay, I feel like I'm in safe hands. Excellent. Yeah, well, well look, we'll see. If you, that might change by the <laughs> end of it. We'll see. But anyway, um, you, know, you were nominated by uh, the wonderful Ashley Streeter-Jones um, in my last episode. And uh, um, she's a wonderful, wonderful human being doing amazing things. Um, so... We're just going to jump straight into it. So, Taylor Hawkins, what is your cause? Well, I'd love to start by saying yes, Ash is one of the most phenomenal young leaders I have ever had the chance of crossing paths with. And it was funny when I found out that she'd nominated me and I understood the premise of the podcast, I sort of started unraveling what then became, you know, with your own life, sometimes you've never told your own story to yourself or worked out how on earth did I get here. Um, I feel very lucky that I have found an area that I am so deeply passionate about and know that this will be sort of the mission that my life works towards over the long term. But I was plotting back my years and, you know, I've been in the volunteer sector for 10 years. I'm still in my 20s, so I started incredibly young, but I, and anyone who knows me will tell you, I'm not good at just picking one thing. (laughs) 
it's probably one of my greatest personal weaknesses, but I want to do everything. And I, I remember all the way through sort of my late teenage years and early 20s, I was just overwhelmed by seeing all the different cause areas and all the different incredibly valid subjects that you can get into to try and make the world a better place because and and I say this as a generally optimistic person but the world as it stands is in a really challenging spot it's hard to find somewhere to look we like that is working perfectly (laughs) um and so I have meandered through a lot of different impact areas but I've landed in what's called future generations policy and and that can be called a lot of different things if I was to remove any jargon or any terms that anyone um, might not quite understand off the bat it would just be finding ways for our leaders to be able to think about the long term because both in the way we've constructed society as well as in the way that our human brains work we are programmed to just prioritize the short term and put off any of the long-term implications um, in the interests of sort of the, the quick wins. Um, and so then you see that manifest across climate, across technology reg- regulation, uh, health, housing, education. Um, and so I am very lucky to have stumbled into a place where I can be fully committed to one issue, but it does cheekily allow me to sort of traverse all of the many areas that I could never pick between. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I love that. And you can have more than one cause on this uh, on this podcast as well. So you go wherever you want to go with that, Taylor. Um, but look, before we delve into a little bit more about, you know, the, the, the work that you do and, and how you're, you know, um, activating all this work and um, going back a little bit, where did you and um, what attracted you to do this in the first place? So was there a moment in your in your life when you were growing up and so forth, we became more socially conscious and, and you started thinking mm-hmm. about you know, the future and so forth. Can you pinpoint that? Was it one moment or was it many moments? So if I think about where that desire to help other people came from at that young age, I think it was this tension between, I have been very lucky to grow up in a really privileged environment on the relative scale. And in turn, both through my social network, my family, I witnessed how cruel in some ways society can be. And so that gave me, I would say, both the opportunity to have the time um, and the the resources to invest in helping other people where I could, um, but also the passion to realize that just because my life was feeling pretty comfortable, pretty safe, uh, that wasn't true for everyone. And then, and I will give absolute credit where credit is due, so I started, originally when I started Foundations for Tomorrow, which is the organization um, that I now lead, I started it alongside two other incredible women, uh, Bianca Gobel and Holly Crockford. And it was originally started as a completely climate-focused organization, back to my point about not being able to pick a cause area. (laughs) Um, And we did a national youth consultation and um, heard from 10,000 young people about what they wanted to see in a more just, equitable and sustainable Australian future. And then in looking at the qualitative responses, so the written responses people sent us, you could see that it was this overwhelming anxiety in young people about why are my leaders not thinking about the future? Why are they not incentivized to do this? Why is everything so short term? Why are we having the same problem again and again where they say, oh, we didn't think about this happening. (laughs) Um, And so then it was I was introduced to this really interesting area of work, sort of the future gen space, which links in with sustainable development and ideas of whether it's well-being economies, etc. There's a lot of overlapping ideas. And that was um, actually Holly, my co-founder, who introduced me to it. So we then worked to pivot the whole organization into that space. But I'd say the last six years has been a political crash course going from someone who like, yes, voted and yes, cared. But I think if I'm being entirely honest, 
sat in a place of privilege where I could, it felt like I could afford not to be deeply invested in politics because the political system felt like it was working for me, um, which I now look back on and laugh. Uh, but yeah, and now understanding the ins and outs and really seeing it as a tool and an opportunity to make change. And we're going to jump around a little bit because you're saying so many things that I'm so interested in. I want to stay on them and then we'll jump back and forth if you're okay. But mm-hmm. if you're talking about, you know, um, that voting um, mm-hmm. as well, do you feel, and did you feel at the time like that, you were like a young person that was like, you know, action to vote? Um, and and then do you, looking back at it now, feel that your vote actually mattered? That mm. makes sense? Or it actually went towards something? Is, does that make sense? Yeah, so... Oh, so, and the way that I voted in my first election, had I done my research, I, I wouldn't have, again. Um, and I, I remember the first election I voted in, my sister was already working in politics, so my sister was a staffer for quite a few years. And I remember calling her um, and saying, how do I vote while in the line? So I was already at the centre just and someone who knew my values sort of telling me how to vote um and she did a great job so i i cannot in any way claim that from a young age i was very committed to voting because that would be an absolute lie i think it's because i wasn't yet aware of all the things that were going a little funky in society I think I was still seeing, and I'm a very, as I mentioned, like optimistic, ambitious person. So I was seeing all the bright, shiny things um, and yet not quite considering what what are the downsides of this uh, policy approach. But then, you know, as, as the years went on, starting to see and starting to see the outcomes of what our leaders were doing and, and being quite heartbroken. And then also I had the privilege, you know, my professional career before starting Foundations for Tomorrow was in leadership development. So I was getting the opportunity to run workshops with executives and hear their reflections. And yes, it's the private sector, so it's a bit different, but hear the pressure that leaders are under and hear how if the system is not set up for them to succeed, even the most well-intentioned, big-hearted people who got into leadership for the right reasons because they want to do the right thing can lead people in the wrong direction because they're not able to overcome um, the momentum of where the system is going. Just staying on the, the, the voting um, part of it now and looking at what you see today um, with young people, do you feel there's a real big shift in that like now? And, and young people are, are really um, you know, doing their research and educating themselves more on who they, why they vote, what's the key things they need to vote on and who is that? And, and is there a person that they can feel confident is going to action um, what they what they seek mm. I think it's and my husband always tells me that I need to stop always saying both things can be true but I think both things can be true which is yes there is without a doubt more young people empowered to be vocal in the political landscape than there were 10 years ago there are more young people leading organizations that actively advocate directly to parliament and that makes me incredibly happy I still also talk to a huge amount of young people who say I don't, even adults, who say I don't care about politics, who have followed the same trajectory that had mine sort of not been disrupted, I would have stayed on, which was, and and what I always tell people when they say that to me is, okay, so you're saying you can afford not to care, because surely you're not saying that the political system and the democracy on which our country runs isn't important, so you're saying that you're sort of happy to step away from the steering wheel and just let it, let it roll. To your question of do I feel like 
my vote has an impact. I definitely do. And please note that I actively, um, actively don't back a single party. Uh, but for example, like I, um, I live in Forestville, um, in the electorate of Sophie Scomps and, uh, you know, her placement there reflects the way that I did vote in the last election. And I have been really, really pleased to see the way that she's approaching everything the freshness that she's bringing to politics she's the co-chair of the parliamentary friendship group that I now run so showing her commitment to the young people in her electorate that if they come to her with uh, what at the time I can tell you was quite a left of field idea that you know that quite open and we're seeing so many more politicians come in who are like that um, you know, Kate Cheney being another great example, she's really taking a stand for the long-term future, for integrity, um, and for the broader concept of well-being um, in Australia. So, yes, your vote can definitely have an impact because all of these independents that we saw in the last election are an absolute result of, I would say, a lot of young people, a lot of women, saying, I want to see something pretty different. And I wasn't very politically active until I started doing the work that I did and then seeing how, you know you needed to have political backing and support and, and action in that space as well. Uh, and what I always found was um, that politics, when I first was around it, I felt was very like a game um, and and people played the game a little bit and there was no one that ever stood out um, that was like solution driven. They were more reactive to what everyone else was saying. So they were more jumping on someone else's voice than amplifying their own voice. Do you feel then that there is a shift in that um, that we're seeing in today's um, political landscape and young people are like beginning to shape that as well. Do you feel that? Definitely. I absolutely feel that. I feel that with the events of the last year, both with you know the experience of women in Parliament House, with the growing imperative for climate change, although I wish desperately that we'd taken quicker action, but the momentum's starting to head in the right direction. We need to take it even more seriously. But you know, a great example, Anjali Sharma and David Pocock putting forward a bill for a duty of care. Um, with regards to climate issues for future generations. So they're putting forward this idea of baking it into law. And it's funny, when I explain this, anyone who hears it is like, well, this sounds like that should be the case. You know, our political leaders should have a duty of care to make sure that the decisions that they make are in the interests of people now and in the future. But it, it doesn't exist. And so the idea that that's being baked in, that it got support um, as soon as it was put in, you know, it's going to be a long journey to see if it's going to be successful. But and Jolly, I think, is 19 um, and so that's, that is the greatest evidence that someone who is still a teenager, who is so committed and she's wildly intelligent and capable, but she can fully step into this space, be taken so seriously that she's now at the absolute front line of developing this new approach to thinking about leadership in our country. Yeah, it's incredible to hear, um, to hear that as well. Um, we'll move on a little bit, but just really quick question about this. Uh, voting age, do you feel it should be lowered? I feel it should be lowered. I feel that we also need a cultural shift and a shift in our education to support that, which I know is absolutely aligned with what's being argued for. But yeah, the work that um, that Run For It is doing, I think, is fantastic. And, and yes, I think that there are so many young people, even just look at Fridays for the Future, who have incredibly young people engaged in that movement. Those young people who want to be engaged deserve the right to have their voice heard. Absolutely. You touched a little bit on the climate stuff as well, and I know, I know it's a big thing. Um, but like, what are the? And I want to go back to that part you said there about if you had acted a little bit quicker. So mm-hmm. we will come back to that as well. But if you look at um, the, the issues or the challenges that we face in the world, like what what are the key ones that young people that you're hearing from young people 
that are like front and foremost, like the, the, the priority issues that they want to see addressed? Mm. Oh, well, world versus Australia, probably slightly different answers because one of the other hats I wear, I work for the UN Foundation working with young people from all around the world. And I can promise you the challenges we have here are very serious. In turn, a lot of the challenges that young people are facing here compared to other countries, we're in a very lucky spot. So, But if we just focus on Australia, number one, housing. Um, that is a shock to no one. Very close to my heart because I just got informed yesterday that my lease will not be renewed. So <laughs> I'm about to be entering that wonderfully interesting landscape. Um, housing, health, education, climate. Um, a lot of the, you know, mental health is huge as well. Not only speaking about a system where we are underinvesting in preventative healthcare, and so we're just being exactly, as you said, reactive, but also that we're now in a space where young people's mental health is being impacted by our lack of long-term thinking. The anxiety that surrounds that, you know, not to mention wars in the world, etc. There is a huge amount of new externalities that are then influencing the mental health of young people. And Origin Institute recently um, did some research which created that uh, direct link and demonstrated uh, that the um, developments or lack thereof in climate policy are directly impacting the mental health of young Australians. So those are definitely areas that I think are proactively impacting young people and that I think would be tip of their tongue to talk about. Through our work with Foundations for Tomorrow, we actually explicitly focus more on what we call like existential risks. So that's things like pandemics, things like climate, things like technology um, as well because it's an area that we felt young people were underrepresented in, but that they do care about. So if you speak to a young person, do they think that technology is going to influence their life? They know that it will, but there's sort of a, a lower level of advocacy and focus um, from the youth movement space in that area. It's really interesting. It's a great point you make um, around that kind of well-being of young people and their mental health and all the other um, elements in their lives that they're dealing with or they're, they're concerned about is directly impacting that and that's that becomes then the forefront of the priority of their life as well and and obviously there'll be a, a massive raise in that so um, it's a really really great point that you make I've just been overseas and I was just talking to you about this before before we start recording and one of the things that really struck me when people asked me about where I live back in Australia and so forth was um, was standard of living pricing of living housing and what you've just mentioned as well and like you know I'm you know someone who's you know married with three kids and and and, and so forth and one of the grave concerns I, I have is for the future of my my kids and how they are going to you know um kind of thrive I'm gonna I was gonna say survive but I'd rather say thrive in 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 this world you know um as well so what do you feel are the things that need to be that need to change what are the things that we can do and i know that's a big question so i'm not asking you to solve everything but to solve any problem you got to start somewhere yeah so what do you think needs to like change yeah and i, I think this is at the heart of what i mentioned earlier which is foundations for tomorrow focuses on the, the systems issue that's creating all of these challenges so whether we're looking at how the housing market and the system that supports it and the economy around it has been constructed and designed and how um whether it's tax breaks versus cost of living and other things like that, you know, that is a product of a system that is not adequately hearing from young people or there's not adequate intergenerational collaboration because this isn't just about young people. We also have a population that maybe when they reach retirement age won't own a home and our entire retirement system 
is designed on the notion that you will have that asset. So this is about intergenerational solidarity and collaboration, not just that young people are the only ones that matter as much as I think we're important. That's purely not the case. And so it's if you go back to sort of to the top of the umbrella or to the root cause in the system, it's that we're not creating the space, the accountability, the opportunity for these longer term policies to be developed. Because the reality is, and I spoke to Sophie Howe about this when she was in Australia, who was the first future generations commissioner in the world. Um, and I asked her, you know, how do you know you've been successful? So she was in her position for seven years and her entire role is about protecting and being a guardian for the interests of future generations. And she said that the biggest benefits of the work that I did will not be seen for five to 10 years. And you can see how our electoral cycle does not support a leader being able to take that approach. So it was only because of the nature and the mandate of her role that she had the freedom to do that. And so until we either create a new role that has that ability or we change the culture, have a huge cultural shift in the way that people vote and the way that they understand and educate citizens, but here's how you vote to get the better long-term outcomes and have that accountability for leaders as well, we're going to continue to see policies that political leaders can hold up at the end of their three and a bit years and say, I did a good job. And the long-term policies we need will not successfully do that. That's fascinating. That five to ten year vision that you're talking about or, or action needs we had is 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 um is so important. It's so important. Um so if you look at then the climate, I'll just go back to the climate thing really quickly. Yeah. Um well not quickly because I don't want to do, we don't have climate too quickly, but I want to brush over it because it's a massive, massive, massive important thing. And um, you said uh, a comment I wanted to re- uh, go back on, and that was about if we had acted a little bit quicker. And I know this is a hard, probably another big, broad question on that one, but like, is there a time point where you think, you know what, if we just had been a little bit more conscious here and had more leadership here, we could have avoided a lot of the problems that we're facing today? Hmm. I hate to be difficult, but, and, and look, instances and choices do come to mind, uh, but I am a big believer in, at this point that we're at, placing blame doesn't help and you know putting leaders on the stake and punishing them for the decisions that they made at that time only makes present day leaders more scared to take action because when they see how vicious the public can be like you could and and I the reason that I have so much respect for the leaders that I get to work with is that you could not pay me enough to be an elected leader in parliament you could not I don't and so many people have asked me because the nature of the work that I do like oh you can run for election no no never well never <laughs> never 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 <laughs> because it is it's so challenging and it demands so much from you and people who do it do it because they care but the system is set up to then make you feel like you're constantly failing and then citizens will tell you that you're constantly failing no matter what you do you can have a few wins but if you fail once or twice they will never forget that so i will politely decline to point to specific moments where I think a leader could have done a better job and instead zoom out on the trend that we've seen, which is basically that Australia is in a chokehold, which is our media, which is where the money in our country sits, um, sits with the interests of maintaining fossil fuels and sits with the interests of not changing the system. And so that is the challenge that we're in. And so we need leaders who are willing to take risks, who are committed to protecting the communities who will, and this is, I'm not all sunshine and rainbows, like there are communities that will hurt and hurt hard if we move quickly away from fossil fuels. So it's about making sure that we 
look at our overall policy landscape and make sure those communities are supported and really ask ourselves the hard questions of where are we putting our money and what does that say about what we care about and what our values are and what sort of the, you know, quote unquote Australian way is that we're all trying to be so proud of, but I think we're quite far away from the fair go for all that we'd hope for. Yeah, thanks for that answer. Um, if I reframe it a little bit then, where do you think we could be heading for the next whatever years if we don't, if we, um, if we don't take action, um, more action? I know we're taking action, but if we don't really, really, you know, rally around this and take some serious action, where do you think this could, could go? Well, look, the, the data doesn't lie. I, and I, I don't want to lean too hard on the data because that's been around for a long time. Like n- none of this information is new. It's just different angles of the same information. But, you know, hottest month on, on record, uh, the Secretary General of the UN just saying that we've moved from global warming to global boiling, that so many of the, you know, islands and communities that are close to us geographically and, you know, close to our heart as a nation will suffer the most as a result of our failure to act. There are many communities in Australia that are now uninsurable due to climate crises and due to whether it's floods or fire, that there are people who genuinely, the premiums are so high that they're deemed uninsurable, which I think the classing for that is if the premium is more than 1% of the value of the property. And so it just means that the risk to the lives and the communities of these people is just outstripping any practical ability to live in those spaces. So where we're heading is really frightening. And I really hope that we have finally reached the point. And actually, it breaks my heart because there was, I think, the two there was two years in a row that I used the same um, sign in the protests when the bushfire season came around. And it was like, is this the final wake-up call that you need? And it was really heartbreaking to have to use that multiple times to say, okay, clearly it's not working. <laughs> Which yeah. is why, you know, we can't hope and rely on the political whim of the day or rely on maybe this politician will hear me this time. We need to bake this in to how we approach policy in all areas. Like climate is a really great pressing example. And so I love the bill that Anjali um, and David Pocock have put forward. I would love to see that duty apply across all areas of policy because right now we're just playing whack-a-mole. Like you deal with one problem. We could deal really well with climate and then we're focusing so much over there that whether it's housing, whether it's AI, etc., we'll turn around and something else will be doing this. So... Like worldview is obviously a big thing. I believe it will be important to see it from the other side, even though it's a challenging vision when you hear it as well. Like, do you really like stress and importance on being able to do that and having a worldview so that you can actually then work and understand the position of others and to then make like them maybe change a little bit, uh, albeit maybe slowly in some cases? Mm. And just so I understand the question, so you're saying as a person having a broader, sort of more open view of the world, is that what you mean? Yeah, well, like if you look at, you know, the challenges that you face and you're looking at, like, you know, you're trying to activate leaders or you're trying to empower leaders and so forth. Um, and I'd imagine you would come across, you know, some some leaders or even like if you're working with companies or you're working with whatever, like, that have a, a, a different view mm-hmm. on the importance of climate change yeah so what i'm trying to get at is like he, like if you feel it's a really important thing to actually be able to step back because people feel really passionate and when you mm-hmm. feel really passionate and really powerful for something sometimes you might miss the opportunity to see why they feel that way and how you can better then work within that to mm-hmm. make change oh 100 and look i there's a few factors that play into this which is number one it's a real privilege to get to care about climate change you know if we look at 
the basic needs of humans. There's lots of Australians that cannot afford to care about climate change because maybe they don't know where they're sleeping tonight or where their next meal is coming from. And so, number one, being able to be angry about this is a privilege. And so I feel lucky to be able to spend the mental capacity on that. Um, I just find it a real blessing. It's my professional background being a facilitator in leadership training programs that gave me the skill to sit in conversations that maybe I was hearing and I was seeing things that I very strongly disagreed with, but realizing and doing, you know, in my learning and experiencing that you don't change people's perspective by berating them. If anything, you calcify them in that point of difference. So if you are truly committed to seeing us have a more unified perspective and bringing, bringing us together and reducing polarization, you need to make it safe for people to disagree. You need to make it safe for someone to express, okay, here's why I think that, so that then you can unpack it together. Because if all we're doing is saying, you didn't do this, you're a bad person, da-da-da, like, that goes nowhere good. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah, holding the space for someone to actually unpack why they disagree with you, either, so even if their opinion doesn't change, you're then better equipped to navigate that together and say, okay, we have different perspectives, but I understand the mechanics of why your perspective is different. And so we can better negotiate how to move forward in a somewhat productive way. Or you actually have so much of a productive conversation that maybe they and you, and it's not always, it's not an us versus them and their opinion must change and we must stay the same, but maybe both people, both parties can move a bit closer to each other. Let's get into a little bit more about Foundations for Tomorrow, yeah? Because um, I know you started with that. We've kind of gone we've gone back and forth and everything because I'm just fascinated by some of the stuff you're speaking about. It's just, uh, it's a privilege to have someone like yourself, you know, be able to unpack that for myself and, and the listeners of this podcast. Um, but let's go back to Foundation for Tomorrow. Can you um, run through the, the various projects um, that sit under that? Yeah, so Foundations for Tomorrow, as I mentioned earlier, started with a national youth consultation. So we spent nine months to a year just working on that. So just getting young people to fill out a survey, which I can tell you sounds simple. It's not. Um, <laughs> no surveys are simple, I don't think. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, so we worked on that initially. And then, as I said, we found that sort of trend of young people being really concerned with um, leadership and short-termism um, pivoted the organization. And so then we started researching what are other countries doing? What is working? What has worked? And so looking whether it's a Wales and their Future Generations Commissioner, the Singapore Centre for Strategic Futures, what Finland is doing, what lots of our OECD colleagues are doing, um, even what's happening in the UAE and how they're looking at futures and long-term thinking. We then did a large amount of landscaping and research to look into, okay, how are these legally structured? How did they come about? What support did they have for this to work? And so we then had this really rich research basis to understand how could we then localize this in Australia? Because even the um, structurally similar example, so if you look at the UK, um, and they have what's called an all-party parliamentary group for future generations, which is structurally very similar, the dialogue, the terminology to use needs to be so different. It needs to plug into the sentiment that Australia is currently feeling and then finding different political allies. So we spent sort of the next year engaging members of federal parliament in the parliamentary group for future generations setting that up so we have 23 federal members and we've been running meetings of that group which started with trying to create a shared understanding of what future generations policy could look like in australia what are the economic benefits because you know long-term thinking is not a nice to have it even even if you are someone who just cares about gdp it still helps 
it's still a good thing. <laughs> um, and so then in the progress of that, we became quite plugged into, as I said, the work of the Office of the Future Generations Commissioner, as well as the Network of Institutions for Future Generations, which is sort of a big global group um, of different representatives from different countries working on this. And so we started to take on projects like the Future Generations Leadership Accelerator, which is an online um, learning program. So using my skill set from the learning and design work that I've done previously to equip young people to be advocates for future generations policy in the way that resonates with them most. So whether they are an engineer, whether they work in policy, being able to start to bring this language and this way of thinking into their work, because we need this to infiltrate across many pockets in society. This isn't about keeping it as some perfect, pure niche narrative. We just want people to remember, you know, even if you think about um, First Nations people in Australia, this way of thinking is core to the way that they stewarded this country for over 65,000 years. Like This is not new information. This is not revolutionary. This is a remembering of how some cultures have continued to work and how the first peoples of this land did for a really long time and that did so successfully. So, yeah, we continue to run the parliamentary group, um, do the Future Generations Leadership Accelerator, and then just continue to do research and working with young people to help them be what we call productive and proactive advocates for the future. And so that's making sure that they're equipped to have reasonably robust conversations with political leaders with proposed solutions. And that's something that I care a lot about, which is, you know, and I follow this in my personal life, unless I can come up with a solution, I'll tend not to whinge about a problem. Um, and so I would say the same thing applies, and I use the word whinge just for myself, we can call it Demand change, something more empowering, but whinge is just my own internal dialogue for me. Um, but it's, yeah, if you see a problem, great, rally together and try and find some sense of collaborative unity on what you want. Because one of the many reasons that I would find being a politician too stressful is you have 20 different groups of advocates, probably frustrated with the same thing, suggesting slightly different solutions. And then you're already drowning in the demands of your job, trying to unpick, okay, whose proposal should I prioritise? Is it the one with the most voices behind it? The one that's the most thought through? The one that's the most politically aligned with the landscape I'm working with? Like, goodness, that sounds so hard. So we are working with a few other incredible organisations like Think Forward, like Origin Institute, like EveryGen, um, and being supported by the Foundation for Young Australians to develop an intergenerational um, fairness coalition. So bringing together organisations that care about this topic and that want to be... Um, advocating directly to Parliament about it and trying to create a sense of unity in our proposals. And so each of us compromising a little bit because we all already had our ideas of what the perfect path forward was, but putting in the legwork and doing the what can sometimes feel like a heavier lift of compromise and negotiation so that we have this one shared proposal that we can then all be sharing and that it's sort of the one song sheet approach. You make that sound really easy, don't you? you do. <laughs> I promise you it's not. <laughs> so on that then, what are the what within that, what are the what are the challenges that you see? Like what like what are some of the challenges that you face to have that, you know, walk the way you said and, and follow that path the way you follow it the way you way you explained it? I think there's a lot of challenges. Number one, the social sector is chronically underfunded. And so what you're chronically underfunded and there is this consistent, it's different for different organisations, so I'll speak just for Foundations for Tomorrow, but you're constantly trying to demonstrate the value of your work, the value of your place in this system, so that whether it's philanthropic, private sector, wherever your money's coming from, whether it's service provision, 
that people want to fund you to continue doing your work. And so what you do by coming into these sorts of coalitions, and I can say as someone who is both responsible for pushing into this coalition and then also responsible for finding where our funding comes from in the future, it plays out in your mind, which is how am I going to demonstrate our unique value proposition so that we can continue to exist so that so that we can be successful when we go for funding. And the really hard decision that I made probably about a year and a half ago was we need to come together. And if in that there is another organization or there is, or it's just the collective that people can see the value in and that is making the progress, then maybe we don't need as many nonprofits as we have. And maybe it's my job as if I'm truly committed to this outcome and if I am truly going to take the approach that I'm asking political leaders to take, which is think about the long term, don't think about yourself, is to say, okay, maybe Foundations for Tomorrow shouldn't exist anymore and I'll go work for ThinkFord or EveryGen or someone else who is getting the traction. So I would say that it's just, it's about really applying the same mindset that you'd hope other leaders took to your own leadership and making it not about yourself and not needing to be the the shiny people or the, as I often rant to people, like everyone needs to stop trying to be the one person who saves the world. It's too late. It's too late for that. No one person can do it. And so we all need to be willing to be part of the bigger movement, like a faceless, nameless part of a big movement for change that maybe you won't get accolades, you won't have people celebrating you, but you're putting in the work and you're creating something that is unifying, that invites other people, that doesn't feel like it's about sort of one person, but it's about our shared future. It's very refreshing um, approach um, to say that. Yeah, I'm probably uh, want to make sure you're, all the staff uh, don't you don't think they're out of a job tomorrow uh, when you say <laughs> when you say that, Tana. But I I purely joke. I know exactly what you're saying, and and it's um, you're so you're so right. Like there is so many people trying to you know um, maybe feeling they're solving the same or solving that problem and feel that they have to solve that problem when, you know, when you look at, you know, collaboration and partnership and, and, and actually supporting the people that you say are having more attraction in that um, and promoting that as well. And just quickly, though, how much of the balance do you have in your current role in regards to making sure you're, uh, you know, sustainable to do the work that you're doing for whatever period of time that is versus doing the work? Um. My lifestyle is not very sustainable at the moment. I think that's just to be entirely honest. I I work three jobs. So I run Foundations for Tomorrow. I do leadership development consulting and I work for the UN Foundation. I, yeah, I don't sleep a huge amount. Uh, and that's because, and it, this is changing now, but that's because two years, two years ago when we were moving into this space and advocating, like this conversation hadn't started in Australia. And I can tell you, the amount of politicians who I met with and tried to tell them, you know, future generations, it matters, da da da, who didn't want a bar of it, um, who are now interested, and, I, and I'm grateful, I'm not complaining because it means things are moving in the right direction, but Foundations for Tomorrow has required a lot of, a lot of care and nurturing because I, don't, I think for some people it wasn't immediately obvious the niche we were serving and how bringing a youth voice but pairing that with this like very evidence-based research-based solution design oriented approach was going to be valuable and that that tide is shifting and I'm very grateful for it but in order to make that possible um, I have you know had to be creative with my lifestyle and how foundations for tomorrow works <laughs> yeah <laughs> and well then probably a feeding question on that then what's kind of next for you and what's kind of next for um foundations for tomorrow 
Love that question. So we're actually in the in the midst of consulting with members of the parliamentary group. So based on our meetings so far, consultations with law reform experts, speaking to young people, um, as well as lots of the coalitions and networks that we're in, we're developing a bit of a roadmap. And it's certainly, and in this landscape, we can't have sort of a linear path of saying this will happen and then we'll do this and then it will go perfectly this way. Like it's just not, it's not going to be one simple straight line. And so our proposals include, you know, the ambitious goal of seeing law reform, which would have, um, whether you call it a duty of care, whether you frame it another way, but putting this responsibility on our leaders and supporting them to do so, to care about the long term, to care about the interests of future generations in Australia. Um, there's lots of different ways that we can get there. And if that is not going to happen, there's lots of things that we could do that take us from zero to five. You know, if we can't get all the way to 10 out of 10, we can get to five, six, seven by whether it's going through like a public sector commission, whether it's going through the productivity commission that we already have and sort of adding a new tranche on that that considers these ideas, strengthening the intergenerational report. It's not law reform or bust. It's that's the audacious goal. And here are so many other ways that we can help Australia to embrace long term governance more effectively. Um, so we're working on consulting with members of the parliamentary group on those proposals at the moment. I have a wonderful set of meetings next week to speak to them about it, get their feedback, because obviously we want them to resonate with the proposals we're making and feel like it's something that they could support. And then we'll be formally launching that intergenerational fairness coalition I mentioned before in November this year. And then it's just finding creative ways to make things in that roadmap happen. And that, I wish I could predict to you how that was going to go, but I, I have learned that I can't. <laughs> <laughs> and then what about you? And we can, we can, we can, I can say one thing very clear that you made. You are definitely not going into politics. <laughs> You've mentioned that a number of times there. So I think we're okay on that one. But uh, are you looking for an extra, like I know you're busy enough with the three roles that you have. Are you looking to do anything else? Are you looking to reduce? What, what, do, you, what do you think is important for you going forward? Um, and I hope, I hope my husband hears this through the door because he'd be, he'd be <laughs> the amount of hours a day and the tenacity with which I've had to work the last few years, um, is significant. And so just making sure that I can continue being a human and continue doing the things that I've committed to do, to be honest. And it's a huge step for me to have that as my answer because I'm such a chronic striver. Like I'm always trying to do more, always thinking of how I can be better. And I think I just need to exist for a bit and, you know, continue leading foundations for tomorrow. Like that's got my heart and I'm going to keep doing that. And I love getting to work with leaders in the private sector. I think that it helps me stay quite grounded in the realities of what being a leader is like, because your meetings with political leaders are always really short and they have such little time that you don't get to spend that much time with them. And so getting to spend two days in a workshop with executives who are responsible for huge projects and you know especially some of the companies that I am very lucky to work with are working for very purposeful outcomes working across science and technology that influences climate policy um and so yeah I'm just excited to keep doing exactly what I'm doing and find more sustainable ways to do it so that I don't collapse in a heap (laughs) (laughs) we don't want that no one wants that no one wants that Tana before we finish just one last um question do you feel optimistic for the future I do because I can't see another way to be. I think that if we lose our optimism, the energy to push will disappear. So it's not because I don't 
read all the research that says that maybe I shouldn't feel that way. <laughs> well, it's not because it doesn't feel hard and I don't feel a bit exhausted. It's just because, you know, if I go into my meetings feeling a sense of love and passion for humanity and believing that we can turn this ship around, you know, people won't really want to talk to me, I think, if I'm going in and telling them the world's ending. So I choose to focus on this dream I have that we can really turn this around and, you know, 10 years from now we look back and say, wow, that was close. We really nearly let it all go off the rails, but thank goodness that we, you know, put our big boy, big girl, big people pants on and addressed it head on. Um, so yes, I am optimistic because I don't think there's any other way to operate in this space. Well said. Um, <laughs> <we're>... <laughs> well, I can tell you, I feel very optimistic that there's people like yourself that are doing this work. So, you know, I hope that, you know, you do take stock of what you do and, and, and realize the important work that you and Foundations for Tomorrow um, are doing on a daily basis for my kids and, and, and everyone else's kids and their grandkids going forward. So I feel very optimistic with, after speaking to you about this today. Before we leave, part of this podcast is obviously, you know, you've been nominated by um, a guest being, um, being Ash. And yeah, so I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit and say that, um, you know, have you got someone or have you got other people in mind um, who you feel would be um, could be the next guest and someone that would be very interesting for me to speak to and share their cause? As soon as I knew that I would have the chance to do that, honestly, names started to flood my brain because I am very yeah. grateful that, you know, this sector and this space is filled with incredible people. I have a list of about 10 <laughs> that I put in. <laughs> okay, okay. We won't go through them right now. <laughs> I, I don't uh, do things by half. So I will send you a list of 10 incredible people and um, I am going to let you pick if that is allowed. Am I breaking, Ooh, your, no. breaking your game? <laughs> no, no. You've reframed it a little bit. You put me in the spot. I like it, Taylor. And that's that's absolutely fine. As long as you uh, allow me to discuss with you a few of the people and so forth of as course. we go on. Absolutely not a problem at all. That's it. That's great. Look, I just want to thank you for your time. It has been um, wonderful speaking to you um, this morning and uh, it's been amazing hearing the work that you're doing, but also just your take on some of the, some of the stuff that's going on. And, and and as I said before, it's it's so reassuring to know that there is people like you and there is Foundation for Tomorrow out there doing all this such important work um, for the future as well. So um, I just want to thank you again for your, for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And I think having spaces like your podcast where you can listen to other people who are trying and, you know, being really candid about that it's not always easy, but, you know, if you're passionate, you can keep going. It, it helps a lot. So a big thank you to you as well. No, I, that's, I really appreciate that. Really appreciate that. All right, with that, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. And uh, I hope you have uh, an amazing day and I uh, look forward to staying connected and, and seeing all the great work that you're going to do um, going forward. You too. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please subscribe and share. If you want to follow me on Instagram or on Twitter, you will see the handles in the show notes. This podcast was produced and edited by